first speaker is Alan Rice, who's professor in English and American Studies in the School of Language, Literature, and International Studies at the University of Central Lancashire. Um, he's published widely in African American Studies, Transatlantic Cultural Studies, and also in Ethnic Studies. And his first uh, monograph, Radical Narratives of the Black Atlantic, was published in 2003. And his latest book, Creating Memorials, Building Identities, the Politics of Memory in the Black Atlantic, and was published in 2010. And he's also published extensively in journals and edited collections, um, including a recent example, The Cotton That Connects, The Cloth That Binds, Manchester's Civil War, Abe's Statue, and Lavina Hamid's Transnational Polemic. Uh, Alan Rice was academic advisor to and board member of the Slave Trade Arts Memorial Project in Lancaster, which was responsible for the commissioning and building of the first British Quayside Monument to the victims of the slave trade unveiled in Lancaster in October 2004, uh, uh, five, sorry, and he co-curated the exhibition Trade and Empire, Remembering Slavery at the Whitworth Art Gallery in Manchester. And a lot of those more published work which draws on this curatorial experience, including revealing histories, dialogizing collections, museums and galleries in Northwest England, commemorating the abolition of the slave trade. Um, so I'd like to invite Alan to speak now. The title of his paper, uh, Playing in the Dark with the Archive, African Atlantic Artists and Radical Interventions. Thank you very much. Um, it really is a pleasure to be here. I'd like to thank in particular um, Celeste Marie for inviting me and um, to such an amazing gathering of, of scholars in this area. It's not often we get together, especially in Britain, so it's nice to be together. And, uh, it's 1849. You're a southern functionary in charge of the penitentiary in Richmond, Virginia. And you have to numerate your prisoners, divide them into black and white, Make sure the register tallies and accurately document a novel, an idiosyncratic crime, to sit alongside the others. You have columns. One column for the white prisoners, one column for the black prisoners, and then a column to write down what they've done. Here is how you enumerate. It's Richmond, Virginia. You're the keeper of the penitentiary. Three whites, one black, for murder in the second degree. Three whites, no blacks, for slave stealing. One white, no blacks, for, for, riding, for aiding slaves to abscond. Five whites, one black, for larceny. Thirteen whites, three blacks, for forgery. One black, well sorry, one white, one black, for bigamy. One white, no blacks, for arson. One white, no blacks for barn burning. One white, no blacks for highway robbery. One white, no blacks for having a quarter dollar die to counterfeit with. One white, no blacks for enticing slaves to be boxed up. In the 21st century, this record is now in the archives and the factual record of a novel form of slave fugitivity is captured in the bureaucratic discourse of the southern slave power. It's recorded as a specific, specific form of criminality with its own row in the column. We might, with Dion Brand, speculate as to the way such a functionary would undertake his account keeping. 
She describes how in this museum are records, books, lists, names of the enslaved and their age, sex and physical condition. I look down each list. I try to imagine someone writing these lists. Would they have written them down contemporaneously? Or would they have kept a running record? Would they have had a cup of tea before going to the job? Or would they have stopped in the middle, gone home to have an afternoon nap, and returned thinking what a nuisance paperwork was? Or would this person have written the facts and figures down quite happily, with a flourish in his, her wrist, congratulating his, herself on the completion of their task? The task is to leave a complete record without blemish. The task of the prison guard, plantation owner, slave ship captain, archivist, is to make the enumeration every day, ordinary, so as to dispel any doubt that this is normality. Brown's description of the workaday nature of agents within the panoptical control of the peculiar institution articulates the archive's powerful message of a controlled world to which there is no alternative. As Stephanie Smallwood says, such business narratives are often the only evidence we have of individuals who lived everyday lives in the slave system. The ledgers, double entry pages, and the neat grid of the invoices gave purposeful shape to the story they told. Through their graphic simplicity and economy, invoices and ledgers and logs effaced the personal histories that fueled the slaving economy, containing only what would fit within the clean lines of their columns and rows, they reduced an enormous system of traffic in and control of human commodities to a concise chronicle of quantitative facts. All such bureaucratic activity erases from view the politics that underlays the neat account keeping. However, it's here in the archives of the punitive regime that we find conclusive proof that Henry Box Brown's method of escape from slavery disrupted bureaucratic order. There has to be a new um, row in the jailer's account. Hortense Spillers succinctly reminds us that in slavery, the cultural subject is concealed beneath the debris of the itemised account. And this is true for criminality as much as it is for everyday life on the plantation. Of course, here, the prisoner is the white man who helped the slave to escape, and for once the itemised account is unable to contain the black man who has flown. Far from being concealed beneath the debris, Box Brown has spirited himself away, having only, leaving only speculation and disorder behind him. His white accomplice, Samuel Smith, is jailed for trying to repeat the act and spirit other slaves away in packing boxes. Southern discourse reveals its ideology as it describes how infantilized slaves have to be enticed by evil men to enter a box. They're described rather like medieval child stealers, pied pipers, gulling innocent and happy slaves away from their homes. Giorgio Agamben has talked about the ideological workings of the archive of such repressive regimes. The archive designates the system of relation between the unsaid and the said. The archive's constitution presupposed the bracketing of the subject who was reduced to a simple function or an empty position. It was founded on the subject's disappearance into the anonymous murmur of statements. 
the written record here is reductive and is anonymised, so that these criminal subjects disappear and are replaced by a discourse that attempts to wholly contain them. It's a form of containment, as Susan Stewart describes the archival collection. The threat of infinity is always met with the articulation of boundaries. The collection that appears as a mode of control and containment insofar as it's a mode of generation and series. The list gets ever longer, but it's always controlled. It tells us nothing new. The archive of the controlling state does the job at the as a dark margin, encircling and limiting every concrete act of speech, making them all subject to the hegemonic discourse of the slave polity. Despite its power, which was to be enhanced even more by the incoming fugitive slave law that will operate beyond its borders and into the northern states, the peculiar institution and its meticulous record-keeping cannot contain Henry Box Brown and his spiriting away from Richmond. If Frederick Douglass had had his way, the, this record of Box Brown's escape might have been the only one left behind, as he urged slave fugitives not to boast of their methods, lest they harmed the chances of those that followed. Instead, the archive gives us only this fragmentary record, not only this fragmentary record, but a veritable treasure trove of material from which contemporary visual artists have mined. I want to investigate three of these excavations to outline the differing effects of dynamic uses of the archival record of slavery and abolition to remember the past and comment on contemporary racial realities. James Young has commented on the limitations of archival sources, talking about uh, how museums, archives and ruins may not house our memory work so much as displace it with chains of material evidence and proof. The archivist's traditional veneration of the trace is tied directly to their need for proof or evidence of a particular past. But in this, they too often confuse proof that something existed with proof that existed in a particular way for seemingly self-evident reasons. For young, authentic historical artefacts too often encourage those who use them as evidence or indeed for other purposes to naturalize particular versions of the past. In discussing Pat Ward-Williams, Glenn Ligon, and Simeon Barclay's mining of the slavery archive, and in particular the Henry Box Brown archive, I will show how all three move beyond such limited and self-serving prescriptive attitudes to open out the implications of Box Brown's remarkable historical trace, making it have radical implications in new geographies and for contemporary racial and political realities now and indeed in the future. Their works exemplify the Pamelimpsestic presence of slavery that haunts temporal and spatial borders, continuing to have profound material, emotional and psychological effects on the formation of the present. All have at the centre the brown that was both the box that was both confining presence for our protagonist <coughs> and his vehicle for escape, Express. All three, now if you don't know, he was posted to slavery. All three users exhibit one in their mining of the archives, the famous prints of Box Brown emerging from his packing case. Thus they concentrate on the fugitive body, and it is as though it's tangible through its tangible possibilities that they're able to disrupt Anglo-American hegemonic power. There, these reactionary counter sorry, 
Pat Ward-Williams, 30 hours in a box and still counting, I'm going to start with. And here it is. It's a multifaceted take on the box brown escape. The packing case sits on a square plinth surrounded by four large wooden pillars at each corner at about double its height. Each one has framed images attached of a skyscraper, a violin, a rose and a doll's eye. These columns are connected by barbed wire. Um, uh, and that you can see in this image the barbed wire. Uh, the box itself is closed as if on, en route. However, we see, um, uh, in terms of a cutaway inside it, cyanotype images of a crouched black male body. On the base of the piece are the words, Henry Box Brown, who escaped enclosed in a box, three feet wide and too long. Here, Brown's fugitive status is used as an analogue for the position of the black man in contemporary America. And this is confirmed by passages Williams has inscribed on the floor around the box, describing contemporary discrimination, something that African Americans have been subjected to for too long. Confirmed, confined and boxed in a fetal position, the figure will at some point spring free. As Coco Fusco asserts, the subject's emancipation is connected to self-conscious manipulation of his status as an object forcing his way out of slavery through the repossession of his own body. However, as Williams discusses, outside the box are the pillars of Western thought, Western beauty, culture, the way we live, the framed images. It talks about the way that Box Brown escaped from one slavery to another, very much like Nelson Mandela being released from prison and still not allowed to vote in his own country. The barbed wire symbolises the oppressive nature of the society beyond the box, both then and now, and how the escape from slave status will not be a panacea. This is reinforced by the crouched position the prints show, which encodes a memory of confinement stretching back to the Middle Passage. The columns surrounding the box indicate Anglo-American political and cultural hegemony will limit any freedom he might attain. William's installation interrupts the playful, joyous resurrection of Brown that the prince had depicted to take us back to Brown en route and endangered, but also to take us forward to the problematics of a limited freedom because of the operations of racism and discrimination, both for Brown and for the black men and women that will follow him. These limitations are squarely placed on the body so that slavery's ownership continues to have its manifestation long after the end of the peculiar institution. As uh, Dion Brand says, the body is the place of, ca of captivity. And she talks about the way in which there's body memory. And here the body memory means that escape from slavery's consequences is impossible both for those descendants of the enslaved and, she says, and I agree with her, of their oppressors. The installation was a key exhibit in the Thelma Golden curated Whitney Museum Black Male Show in 1994, highlighting its intervention into debates around contemporary black masculinity. Williams had looked for inspiration in the archival record of Brox Brown. As she says, I think as black people, we have to find different solutions to overcome the obstacles that are in our lives politically and also personally. This is a piece about Henry Box Brown and problem solving. It's rather perfunctory explanation 
problem solving, illuminates a pragmatism and also a world weariness at the heart of Williams' installation, which is confirmed by the title that places African Americans confined and still counting down the hours to a full emancipation which has gone on too long. Yet it also celebrates the ingenious solution that Box Brown brings to the problematic of black male personhood under the panoptic regime of slavery in the way that this should be an inspiration for those men and women living under contemporary regimes of power. Brown's imaginative escape, according to Stephanie A. Brooks, talks to the transient position of protagonist protagonists who are repeatedly and often willfully displaced and set to roaming. Box Brown could make this kind of generic blackmail experience painfully clear with his restaged mobile, mobile imprisonment, affirming the trope of the outside manke and bringing such a statue literally and figuratively to life. His use of the legendary box symbolically communicated the decision to remove himself from the visible world while still moving through it. That is, remove himself from the visible world while still moving through it. In doing so, his travelling entrapment offered a signifying metaphor of physical resistance to the antebellum period's rigorous literal and figurative colonisation of black bodies. Brown's escape encodes an optical illusion as his encased body moves express while it remains still. It's such meaning with perceived reality, such messing with perceived realities, with a time-space continuum even, if only as an illusion that will make for the different solutions to contemporary problems that Williams calls for. Williams' strategic work reworking of Box Brown's fugitivity offers an exemplar for the possibilities of breaking free from hegemonic ideas about limitations on black freedom in the here and now, even as it acknowledges the barriers to doing so. Glenn Ligon's 1993 installation to disembark is also a response to rooting in the archives. As he says himself, his practice at this time was influenced by black British artists like Isaac Julian and Keith Piper and their use of history, discovering how one uses the archive, how one might bring the archive to the present, how you fill in gaps in things that cannot be represented. In this way, Ligon, in Jane Fisher's words, pays homage to the voiceless and often disavowed ghosts of the past that haunt the archives of our collective histories. This knowledge he uncovers is vital to the way he develops his installation, using gaps and elisions as positives to create new artistic realities rather than hamstringing barriers to productivity. Like Williams, he discovers Box Brown as an exemplary figure in the archives. I read Henry Box Brown's narrative and began to organise an exhibition around the idea of the box, the missing slave and the slave telling the story of his escape, of slaves from the South, but my aim was never to re recreate Bo Box Brown's escape. I was interested to paraphrase Stuart Hall in how I positioned myself and was positioned by these narratives of the past. I am positioning myself against a certain historical experience and trying to find the connection between it and who I am. The legacies of slavery for Ligon in the present are interrogated by his installation. Nine wooden pocket packing boxes of varying but similar sizes are strewn across the gallery, on whose walls are what at first seem facsimiles of slave runaway posters, runaways, and abolitionist publications. 
The boxes are plain, contemporary wooden freight containers with international signage for goods marked fragile. Their very modernity and the fact that they are all bigger than the exact dimensions of Brown's box show that Ligon is not interested in verisimilitude here, but instead wants to convey the multiple commodifications of black bodies which resemble most contemporary international logistics in the way it transports and records the movement of goods. The boxes and their putative contents are restricted to are restricted in a slave polity which saw African Americans as ch chattel to be bought, sold and exchanged. Unlike the slave escapees though, forced to keep quiet so as to avoid detection, Ligon placed speakers in each of the boxes playing disparate soundtracks. Billy Holiday, Paul Robeson, Bob Marley, um, Chris One and plantation work songs, as well as himself reading Brown's 1849 narrative. And these are multiple. So some of them talk to black freedom, some of them talk to black confinement, some of them talk to the contemporary and the police actions in the contemporary. Uh, as Sadia Hartman describes, Ligon shows for this installation that the afterlife of slavery is not only a political and social problem, but an aesthetic one as well. The graphic effects of the Runaway series add to the feeling of unease and surveillance which surrounds the boxes. Sadia Hartman continues, The Runaway posters and the frontispiece of the narratives employed by Ligon suggest that fugitivity might be a practice without a terminus and as close to freedom as we might come so long as the ex-slave and the emancipated are tethered to receive narratives of the past. Once again, freedom is the endlessly deferred and never arrived at destination. The wooden boxes secrete the escaped slave and also render him invisible. The faux runaway ads were developed by Ligon as descriptions of himself by friends which could figure as police wanted posters but juxtaposed with the graphic mark of slavery. Men with knapsacks, kneeling slaves, and a woman carrying a cloth bag. As Scott Rothkopf discusses, the collective portraits that emerge from these ten lithographs implies that identity is indeed a construct. And show the chilling analogy he draws between the black man's historical role as property and his all-too-common contemporary portrayal as a criminal su suspect. The narratives, on the other hand, show how even the emancipated um, uh, can, uh, and self-defining African-American is still beholden to narrative frames from the majority culture. Probably most telling is Black Rage or How I Got Over, um, where on the frontispiece, Bell Hooks is quoted. When we talk about the commodification of black blackness, we aren't just talking about how white people consume these images, but how black people and other people of colour consume them, and how these become ways of knowing ourselves. This notion of circularity, of how stereotyping creates monstrous realities that can tell the freedom to self-identify, shows Ligon using the Brox Brown story to investigate boxed realities far beyond the packing case. The multiple boxes could in this sense be seen as havens from a discourse within which American culture continues to hold back black folk under surveillance, curtails them and creates warped realities undermine their full potential as human beings. Maybe removing oneself from the visible world while still moving through it is not only a strategy useful for escaping during slavery but has resonances 
for the contemporary. Maybe Ligon's installation not only talks to the past and the present, but also to the future, and more specifically, to Afrofuturism. In discussing the work of David Hammonds, Ligon invokes the career of the maverick, wonderful musician Sun Ra. I should at this point play his 26-minute version of Let's Go Fly a Kite, but we don't have time, unfortunately, and I refuse to play a shortened version. He often describes how black people did not exist in the society. This is Sun Ra. In transit, hiding in plain sight, spiriting themselves away, maybe Ligon's disembarking people come to resemble non-human goods in order to escape in a future frame to humanity away from an American reality that denies them full personhood. As Ligon says, not being from here is a movement towards placelessness, towards this utopic, the post-human, and a deep critique of American society. This has particular resonance with a people historically positioned at the margin of what was considered human. To disembark posits oceanic journeys, but also in its navigation between chronologies enables Ligon to envision not only past and present realities, but also utopian futures. That, that transitory packing cases projected and possible human cargo allude to. Again, Sun Ra shows the way with his extolling of African-American flying myths so to foundational for slave fugitivity. Ra's interested in flight, interest in flight, says Ligon, is a kind of politics. Being light is a refusal of the limitations of what is considered human. The human has always been a treacherous category for black people, given our historical exclusion from that domain. To be light, to be able to fly away, is to be able to imagine something beyond what we see. Ra's ability to see beyond his particular historical moment as a way to change it remains compelling. It's this utopian vision that rescues Ligon's installation from the dangers of mere postmodern effect, as through it the historical triumph of Gox Brown's escape is not constrained by the discourse, albeit challenged, of historical and contemporary American hegemony that surrounds it, but posits new future-directed liberations, even if the story is contained almost magically in a series of packing cases. In this fantastic projection, the boxes wait in plain sight, containing their cargoes full of fugitive possibilities. For Henry Box Brown, sorry, I'm, gonna, I'm moving gear, sorry, move gear. For Henry Box Brown, like many other 19th century abolitionists, the free state he travelled to in the wake of August 8th, and then I was sort of talking, the link is the free state in the future, so yeah, and the free state he's travelling to, unfortunately, in terms of what we know about Britain, is Britain. He travelled to, in the wake of an eight, uh, August 1850 attempt, to kidnap and enslave, re-enslave him on the streets of Providence, Rhode Island. Like Frederick Douglass, he escaped Republican slavery to monarchical freedom, if there can be such a thing, and I don't think so. Okay, that's my comment. Right, um, And found himself enjoying levels of freedom far beyond those he could enjoy in an American state, beholden to a peculiar institution. It's his long-term residence in Britain that piqued the interest of the black British artist Simeon Barclay, who I, I think I'd be glad to say most of you heard of Glenn Ligon, a few of you might have heard of Park Ward Williams, and Simeon Barclay, maybe one or two of you here. Who's heard of Simeon Barclay? Okay. 
black British artist based in Leeds. Um, it's his long-term residence that piqued the interest of him, Simeon Barclay, in creating a performance art piece based on Brown's political and performance poem person, persona as he undertook abolitionist activity in the 1850s. Barclay's performance was developed in the wake of the 2007 bicentenary commemorations of, the, of abolition. And he got much of his archive from me. So, um, uh, and one of the major things he got from me, he came to a talk I gave in Leeds and he got this from me, which one of my students found in uh, the Shropshire archives. Uh, and this is a, a wonderful document because it shows um, something which um, uh, no one knew about, that Henry Box Brown was in Shrewsbury. Think of that. <laughs> Who's been to Shrewsbury? They know that's wacky and weird. Wacky and weird. Henry Box Brown was there, and he was giving his um, he, his um, his um, his wonderful performance pieces. Um, and what I want to shift gear on is the fact that um, Simeon Barclay takes on board a different Box Brown. A, a free box brown, a box brown who is now performing. And Simeon Barclay is going to produce a similar kind of performance. I talk about this performance, but I'm, I'm not going to talk about that, that box brown did. I'm going to just tell you that he had uh, a mirror of slavery, so he had pictures, he did mesmerism uh, with, uh, 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 and, and, and this, but he always opened with his box. And that was the big thing, was his box. And then one day in Leeds, um, he just decided, hey, I really want to recreate the, um, the escape. So he got on the, he was placed um, uh, in his box on the train in Bradford and was taken to Leeds in his box. And then when he gets to Leeds, there's a band waiting for him and they march him in his box still through the streets of Leeds to um, the music hall in Leeds and uh, he's taken in in his box and he emerges from his box like a, uh, a butterfly out of a chrysalis and gives a, a wonderful abolitionist speech. Well, um, Simeon Barclay thought, hell, hell man, if he can do that, uh, I'm Leeds, I want to do it in Leeds too. So he, um, he's, he got in touch with a train company, got in touch with Northern Rail. He said to Northern Rail, I really want to do this thing. And Northern Rail said, uh, Health and safety. <laughs> Just not going to do that thing. So he had to get himself transported in a transit van. So it's a shame, but he was in the box for the two and three quarter hours that Henry Box Brown was in the box, and um, and 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 wanted really just to honour this man's presence in Leeds. And uh, to understand why he needed to be honoured so much, those of us who were involved in 2007 and went all over the country, loads and loads of different commemorations happening there, diddly squat happened in Leeds in comparison to what should have happened. There was little things happening in 2007, but actually it was 2008, 2009 that things started to happen in Leeds. There was an impetus from the Leeds black community. He said, diddly squat happened in Leeds. We really want things to happen, and Simeon Barclay's recreation of the um, the uh, um, of this event uh, was a, a response to that, and it was a wonderful recreation. Just going to show you um, what happened, really. He wanted to um, publicise it in a similar kind of way to Box Brown, and this was his um, uh, this was his uh, poster for the event. Um, and this was in I think it was 2000 2009. It was 2009, and here he goes, and the the, the crowd about um, uh, about 200 of us um, there, 
Look North Television. You can watch it on YouTube. It's that good. You can see it on YouTube. I urge you all tonight to go. And he comes out of his box and he gives a wonderful speech. And there's the box arriving. And his box is, this, is exactly the same size as Henry Box Brown's box. It's not like Ligon. He, he's not, as Ligon said, he wasn't, he wasn't that specific event he was interested in. He was honouring it. But this is a, a recreation of the event. And here comes Simeon. And it was just a joyful occasion. It was an incredibly joyful occasion there. And he gave the speech which Henry Box Brown had given, or portions of it, uh, at the Leeds Music Hall. And um, dressed in, uh, as um, uh, Box Brown often was, you know, uh, sort of Victorian, um, smart Victorian man, showman clothes. And uh, there's the... Um, there's the, uh... right, can I have a bit of light so I can read my conclusion? It's very short. Sorry. <laughs> now the screen's gone dead, I can't read it. Hey. <laughs> As Box Brown had collapsed geography in his 1851 reenactment, what might be called an earlier, uh, what might, might be called a guerrilla memorialization, and I mean by that to describe the way memorialising sometimes takes on an overtly political character in order to challenge dominating historical narratives. And I talk about guerrilla memorialisation a lot more in my book. As Barclay had collapsed chronology in his two, so Barclay had collapsed chronology in his 2009 homage. In doing this, he, following Williams and Ligon and their use of the legacy of Henry Box Brown, they found in the archives to restage his escape and liberate its meanings from the dead hand of history. As Jean Fisher contends, in confronting the what and the how by reference to the historical archive and individual testimony, black diasporic artists reassembled a body to be mourned from the fragments of the past to produce a radical revision of our representation of historical processes, national culture and the construction of subjectivities. In this instance, for once, in the tragic history of the Black Atlantic, that body has a name. He's Henry Box Brown. And he's not only to be mourned, but celebrated, as well as each of these artists in their own unique ways, dynamically achieve. Thank you very much.